Have you ever waited for something for a long, long time only to have that special something exceed expectations? Like overcome those, ex- I mean, I know you've all had that experience where you've waited and waited and waited and, and then it didn't meet your expectations. You know, whether it was like a Christmas gift or that special vacation destination or that thing from Amazon that you ordered and can't wait for. You know, sometimes things don't look like the package, do they? I don't know if you've ever seen these memes where they show you uh, what the advertisement looks like and then what the actual thing, the actual product looks like. Uh, probably the most famous one of these is the McDonald's Big Mac. You know, here's what it looks like on every advertisement. Doesn't that look good? Yeah, but what, what is it that you really get? Yeah, that's the, the most attractive angle we could find, I guess. Uh, that's reality. Doesn't meet expectations. Now, keep in mind, it's a greasy fast food restaurant, so I'm not sure that your expectations were super high to begin with. But some things in life that should be glorious tend to disappoint, don't they? Uh, for example, when we think of God's glorious creation, perhaps what comes to mind is like Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world, majestic, beautiful. But maybe you've seen some of these pictures that circulate online about the reality of climbing up the world's tallest mountain these days. It's become commercialized. You take a look at the second picture here. Isn't that glorious? <laughs> Right? Or maybe you've considered uh, taking a nice vacation to the famous beaches of Rio de Janeiro. That looks beautiful, doesn't it? Don't you want to be there? Just make sure you go at the right time of year, otherwise it will look like this. <laughs> same place, same exact place. The glory of God's creation is directly proportional to how many people are there to enjoy it with you. Right? <laughs> Same idea goes for man-made structures. I've always thought it would be cool to go to the Great Wall of China, you know, thousands of miles of wall to walk and to enjoy. But again, that glory might be a little bit overrated when you actually get there and find how packed it is. Now, one more example here. We've got the Mona Lisa, one of the most significant and popular pieces of art ever created. What would it be like to behold the glory in person? Well, a little bit like this, apparently. It's a lot smaller than you think it is. A lot more people trying to be packed in there to watch it or look at it. Now, sometimes the supposed glory of an object or a destination or an event will really let you down. You think it's going to be this wonderful thing. When you get there, when you experience it, when you've, you've bought your ticket, you brought your family, you've flown halfway across the world only to find out that that beauty and that glory was overrated. Well, this morning, our expectations will not only be met, they will be exceeded. We've been studying the book of Acts. Last week we finished chapter one and we left the disciples all huddled together in this upper room waiting and expecting for God to work. God made him this promise. He said, not many days from now, Jesus said, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will be receiving power with the Holy Spirit when he comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And the disciples gathered together, 120 of them, waiting in one accord, praying, expecting God to answer, expecting something great and glorious, the work of the Holy Spirit to come to baptize them and to empower them to do ministry. Church, this is one of those occasions where reality will not only be met, but be exceeded, far exceed the expectations We're going to begin looking at Acts chapter 2 today. We have some ushers with Bibles. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We're happy to give you a 
copy of God's Word. This is our gift to you. If you need one to take home with you, we want you to have a copy of God's Word open in front of you. We're going to start Acts chapter 2, right at the top, verse 1. The Bible says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. I want to pause there to make sure we understand what this idea of Pentecost is. We Christians and we Americans, we have our own holidays, don't we? We've got Thanksgiving, we've got Christmas, we've got Easter, we've got Super Bowl Sunday. I mean, let's be honest, that's a holiday among us, isn't it? The Jewish people had their holidays as well. They still do. Pentecost is and was one of them. Pentecost was known by a couple of other names. The Feast of Weeks, it's called in the Old Testament. And Pentecost takes place 50 days after the first day of Passover. Pentecost. That Penta stands for that 50. Pentecost. And, and Passover, remember, happened around Easter time. Well, Pentecost, 50 days afterwards, a Feast of Weeks, a Jewish, was a Jewish pilgrimage holiday. Now, here's what that means. There were a few of these pilgrimage holidays. They were when the Jews, wherever you were at, all around the world, wherever you were located, wherever you were scattered to, all around the world, you would come back to their homeland and celebrate in or around Jerusalem. Historians believe that Pentecost was probably the most celebrated, most popular of those holidays, those pilgrimage holidays. The weather was nice. There was plenty of food to go around. Jews would converge from all over the world to celebrate Pentecost. I've, I've read some historians who estimate over a million Jews at times gathered in Jerusalem at this time of year. It was, that was a lot today, and that's a lot back then. By the time of Christ, the Jewish tradition related this idea of Pentecost with the anniversary of God's giving the law to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. The Jews saw Pentecost as an anniversary of God giving the law through Moses to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai. That's going to become really significant today. Just like our 4th of July, you know, we all get together and we barbecue and we blow things up in the sky to celebrate our nation's anniversary. Well, what do the Jewish people do? They they thought of this day as the anniversary of the giving of the law. So their minds are thinking back to Mount Sinai. They're thinking back to the law. They're thinking back to that text where God shows up on the mountain and and starts that relationship with the nation of Israel there. Maybe you remember some of how that story went in the book of Exodus. The Israelites leave Egypt. They're at the base of this mountain, and God appears. Let me read a little portion of that text, Exodus chapter 19. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders, and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. So there's thunder and there's smoke and there's fire and God speaks. Now, one of the interesting things about this Mount Sinai passage is how the text describes these thunders. The text in verse 16 here literally reads, on the morning of the third day, there were voices and lightnings and a thick cloud. Voices, plural. Now, that's not too unusual because that's actually the normal way Hebrew talks about thunders. 
But then down in chapter 20, verse 18, a few verses later, as God is giving the law to Moses to give to the Israelites, here's what it says, 2018. Now when all the people saw the thunder, literally when all the people saw the voices and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. Now that's an odd way to describe something, isn't it? They saw the sounds, or they saw the voices, they saw the thunders. How do you see sounds? Now, at this point, you might be wondering, Pastor, what does this have to do with the book of Acts? Did you forget where we're supposed to be this morning? We are doing the book of Acts, chapter 2. Well, from these texts in Exodus, there was this tradition that developed among the Jewish people where they interpreted these texts to refer to Well, let me, instead of explaining it to you, let me read it to you. I want to read to you some of the traditions of the Jewish people. I'm going to to put something on the screen in a minute, written by a Jewish guy named Philo. Now, Philo is a Hellenistic Jewish philosopher. He was a theologian, and he lived during the time of Christ. So his life and his ministry and his writing overlapped with the apostles. Here's what he wrote about God giving the law to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai. Now, remember, this is from a Jewish philosopher representing some of the Jewish tradition at the time of Luke's writing. What we're about to read was written before the book of Acts. All right, ready? Here we go. Philo writes, And a voice sounded forth from out of the midst of the fire, which had flowed from heaven, a most marvelous and awful voice, the flame being endowed with articulate speech, in a language familiar to the hearers, which expressed its words with such clearness and distinctness that the people seemed rather to be seeing than hearing it. So God's voice sounds forth from Mount Sinai, and a flame comes from that voice with the power to express itself in language understandable to everyone that heard it. Philo describes this speech as something the people could see and not just hear. Again, what does this have to do with the book of Acts? All this brings us back to Acts chapter 2. The Jews are converged in Jerusalem from all over the world. They're celebrating the anniversary of this event, God giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai to give to the Israelites. When God gave that law, it was given with thunderous rumblings or, or with voices, a fiery display of God's presence. And some Jews, like Philo, even interpreted those events on Mount Sinai as God giving This law, through various voices in language able to be seen and heard and understood by everyone there, no matter what language they spoke. Now, one more thing to note before we actually move on to verse 2 in Acts chapter 2. The ESV translates the first phrase of verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And that's that's a good translation, but it does miss a little something in the original language. The Greek text literally reads, when the day of Pentecost was being fulfilled, they were all together. And Luke, I think, wrote this to signal that something very important was about to happen. It's not just Jesus' promise that was about to be fulfilled. It was the day of Pentecost itself that was about to be fulfilled. All that this this feast stood for in the minds of the Jewish people, the law being given to the Jews on Mount Sinai, this event that we are about to read is like a new beginning, a fulfillment of all that came before. 
the expectations, the hopes of the Jewish people, this fills up that. So hopefully we've set the stage enough. During this feast, 120 believers in Jesus Christ, including the 12 disciples, are gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem waiting for Jesus to send the Holy Spirit and baptize them. Now let's pick it up, verse 2. It says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Church, God does not disappoint. He exceeds expectations. They're all gathered together in this one large upper room, about 120 believers, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. And suddenly they hear this sound, and he describes it like a a mighty rushing wind coming from heaven. In Greek, the word for wind and the word for spirit, like Holy Spirit, are connected. They're related. The disciples then see what Luke describes as divided tongues as of fire, that appear and spread all around the room, resting on each person in the room. Now, you're going to notice a lot of language of comparison in this text. Tongues as of fire, a sound like a mighty rushing wind. This experience was beyond anything they've ever seen or heard, and Luke can only describe it using comparisons. They weren't actual tongues of fire resting on the people, but whatever they saw, whatever they heard, that's kind of what it looked like is what Luke's saying. This is a visible sign of God's presence among them. Some of these descriptions seem to me to draw our minds back to that Mount Sinai passage. There is fire. There is wind and smoke and and other appearances of God. God oftentimes showed up in fire in the Old Testament. But the Jewish people are thinking about Mount Sinai. This is something that happens at that time. Now, the result of all this is in verse 4. This is perhaps the most marvelous of it all. Everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is that baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised them. Later on, when we get to Acts chapter 11... Verses 15 to 17, Peter is going to look back on this occasion, even though it doesn't use the word baptism here in this verse, he's going to look back on this occasion and he's going to say that was the baptism of the Holy Spirit that God promised us. Peter interprets this as that baptism. And then he also, in that same text in chapter 11, is going to call this the beginning. This occasion on Acts chapter 2 began something important in the history of God's people. Something began on the day of Pentecost, according to Peter. Now, personally, I I think this is best to say that it's the church that began on the day of Pentecost. The believers were not yet baptized spiritually. Then they were. Peter calls this the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He calls it the beginning. Just like the giving of the law was the beginning of the covenant God made with his people, the Jewish nation, this is the beginning of something new as well. Now, later passages of Scripture are going to connect this baptism of believers with the inclusion of believers into the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, Paul writes, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. All believers are baptized with one spirit. 
And this spiritual baptism doesn't just happen to a few spiritually elite believers. I mean, Paul writes these words to Corinth, and if you know anything about the church of Corinth, you will know that they were not the spiritually elite of the churches back then. And yet he says all believers were baptized in the Spirit. It happens upon a person's salvation. They're baptized into the body of Christ, into the church. Now let me wrap this up and summarize it uh, by giving you the definition I give to my theology students. It's the best way I know how to say it. The baptism of the Spirit is the event at a believer's salvation in which a person is spiritually united with Christ and the church. If you are a Christian, you are baptized spiritually. Now down the road, we're going to see how this idea of baptism connects with this idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit. They're related concepts, but not quite the same thing. The Bible describes being filled with the Spirit as a continuous process, a continual thing that we need to do. Though we are filled with the Holy Spirit upon our salvation, just like a balloon, we could be filled up, but we need to have a continual filling of the Holy Spirit as we grow in Christ. In later sermons, we're going to talk about exactly what that means and how we do that. Now, in this case here in Acts chapter 2, it says the result of the first baptism of the Holy Spirit, they were, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the result is that they begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. Now, what exactly are these other tongues? When I was a teenager, first saved, I had a friend of mine that went to a very different kind of church than I went to, a different denomination. And I would visit his youth group and his church, and I even went to a retreat with him one time on one occasion, and they would practice what they called speaking in tongues. Every service that I went to would kind of build up to this point where people would overflow into this kind of ecstatic speech, everyone kind of speaking all at once, and, and it wasn't any known earthly language as far as I can discern, but it was what they described as a spiritual angelic prayer language, and they called that tongues. Now, I think I can clearly say, based on the text of Scripture here in Acts chapter 2, that whatever was taking place at that church is not the same thing that was taking place here in Acts 2. The reason I say that is because the text in Acts 2 very clearly defines what these tongues are. And they define tongues as known human languages that were previously unknown by the believer who was empowered to speak them. They're known human languages, previously unknown by the believer who was empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak these languages. Now, how do I know that's what these things are? Because if you look down in verse 6, it says the people in Jerusalem heard these things and they said they were speaking in our own language. Then down in verse 8, the people in Jerusalem say, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? So the text of Acts itself clearly indicates these tongues were known human languages. Languages that the apostles and the other disciples, other believers, did not previously speak, but God, through his miraculous empowerment of the Holy Spirit, enabled them to speak it without having previously learned it. So whatever the church I visited was doing, I don't think it was Acts chapter 2, because they weren't speaking in known human languages. Now, I should say this, that some people believe that the churches that practice these things they call tongues today... Uh, they see a difference between Acts chapter 2 and other passages of Scripture that talk about tongues like 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So some churches look at this and, and they say the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 
is talking about a whole different kind of thing than Acts chapter 2. And some people believe these tongues are different than tongues there. Now, my goal today is not to say everything I can say about tongues in the Bible. I had a whole Sunday school class where I did that a couple months ago where we directly addressed this topic. But I made the point there that I believe, this is my belief based on my understanding of Scripture, that tongues in Acts are indeed the same thing as tongues in 1 Corinthians. And I made the point that I believe, according to my understanding of Scripture, that tongues are not necessarily a gift God regularly gives the church today. I'll show you why that is in a few minutes. But I want you to know that there are good, godly, smart, evangelical Christians who disagree with me on this issue. And that's okay. Some of them might even be in this church. And that's okay. That's one of the beautiful things, I think, about the evangelical free church that we're in, this denomination. We are comfortable disagreeing on secondary points of doctrine. Things that shouldn't necessarily divide. It's okay to say Christians disagree on this issue. Now, we should agree on the core essentials, right? We should agree on gospel matters, core doctrines of the the Christian faith, the deity of Christ, the Trinity. We should agree on things like salvation by faith apart from works. But secondary matters, we have liberty to disagree on as long as we do so agreeably. But I take the position, based on the way the text itself describes this thing of tongues here, in Acts chapter 2, that we are talking about known human languages that God miraculously allowed the speaker to use, even though the speaker did not previously learn that language. So that's how we're going to move forward, at least from this sermon. Now, God has a purpose for this miracle. The disciples aren't just given this, this gift of tongues so they can impress their friends or praise God in a different language. They aren't, it's not just a, a cool gift that they could, they could use. This gift has a very clear, discernible purpose. Look at verse 5. You'll start to see it as Luke explains it. He says in verse 5, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. I know I keep on reading and stopping and reading and stopping. I'm going to read and stop again, though, here. Because there's something in this verse I want to make sure that we we grab onto. We have to see this. Luke sets the scene by telling us, again, this is a pilgrimage feast. People from all over the world come to celebrate Pentecost. As we might expect, there were people in Jerusalem from, he says, every nation under heaven. Jerusalem at this time of year became a melting pot of people who had been scattered all over the world through various exiles of the Jewish people, and now they're all in this one city for a couple of days together. But what I want you to notice is how Luke describes these people. He calls them devout men from every nation. I'm not so concerned about the men part, because I think he's using that to refer to men and women. But that devout part, I want us to focus in on that. That word devout could be translated pious. I think NIV translates it God-fearing. The Bible is clear, though. The people that we're talking about here are not believers. They are not saved people. These are people who have every outward appearance of being good, godly individuals. They have the outward appearance of religiousness. They look like godly people. They look like saved individuals. They, they are willing to travel, some of them hundreds, maybe even thousands of miles, to show up for a religious experience. They are devout. They are committed. 
They look really good by all outward standards and all the world's appearances, but they are missing something in their life. They are not true believers. Now, I do believe that this has significant and sobering implications for church today, especially as we are just coming out of a really religious season of Christmas and entering into a really religious season of Easter. We might call those the Christian pilgrimage holidays. Why do I call it that? Because these are times of the year when people who will never ever show up at church any other time of year will get up early, get dressed up, make a pilgrimage to attend a service and do their yearly religious duty. Pious, devout, we might call them. And yet how many of them do not know Jesus Christ as their savior? How many of them are doing just enough to keep themselves from thinking that they're on a road to hell? And it's scary to think about how many people who appear as devout Christians might not actually have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. They've been relying on this this religiousness, this work of religiousness to count for something instead of trusting in the work of God. Church, there are people sitting here right now who are in that category. A group this size, we could be sure of it. And you don't even know it. The devil has done such a good job deceiving you that you don't even realize that you are missing the point of the gospel. If you hear nothing else this morning, I would urge you, based on the text of Scripture, to reconsider your religiousness. Think about your relationship with God. The Bible says that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. You are not justified. You are not declared righteous. You are not saved based on what you do. There is no pilgrimage far enough enough to walk that will guarantee your salvation. Or maybe to put it in a different way, the only pilgrimage that counts is the one that leads you to the foot of the cross where you renounce your sin, you place your faith in Jesus Christ and his righteousness, his death, his resurrection, not your own good works. John 6 says it like this, this is the deed that God requires to believe in the one whom he sent. That's the work that God requires. So I want you to get this perspective. Here's a a group of really good-looking religious people that don't know the Lord. And they're all gathered together in one place, all these Jewish people, but the people who still nonetheless need salvation from their sins. And the text goes on to say, and we'll read a bigger chunk this time, verse 6. It says, and at this sound, so the sound of that whirlwind, sound of that rushing wind, at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So these devout religious Jewish people are amazed. There's 120 disciples, men and women, are speaking in languages that they haven't learned. And notice how many words are heaped up here to kind of express the amazement of what's happening. Verse 6, the people say they were bewildered. Verse 7, it says they were amazed. Verse 7, again, they were astonished. 
We might say today they couldn't believe what was happening. Their minds were blown. I, I fear we might have lost some of the sense of this miracle today. It's not so amazing for those who live in America to hear people speak English, is it? We're used to this. We're kind of used to people speaking our language, so it's not so unexpected to us. Even the technology that we have today has kind of lessened the impact on us, hasn't it? A couple years ago when uh, we were living in Michigan, Janice and I looked out the window on a, a very cold winter day, and we saw a trio of women walking down our street in their pajamas. Very, very cold day. It was in Michigan, and it was clear that these women were not from our neighborhood. So we were wondering what in the world is going on here, right? We didn't know if they were being trafficked. We didn't know if they were trying to escape a bad situation. They were lost. What, what was happening? So we opened up our garage door, and we welcomed them into the warmth. They didn't speak a word of English. We had a hard time communicating with them at first until one of them pulled out their phone, opened up an app, and started speaking into it. And that app translated their words to text and translated that text to English. And through that, we were able to figure out where they were going and what help they needed. Now, 10 years ago, that would have been near impossible. But the technology that we have on our average smartphones today deadened the impact of this passage a little bit, doesn't it? We're used to being able to communicate in different languages to people who don't know our language. But I want you to take yourself back a little while. Imagine a white man walking into a tribe in Africa and suddenly start speaking a native language that he has never learned before. Imagine a Chinese woman walking up to a Muslim in Lebanon and suddenly speaking Arabic, never having learned it. These Jewish people from all around the world are hearing the disciples speak their own language, no smartphones involved. And Luke mentions over a dozen different places they're all coming from all over the ancient world. I'll put a map up on the screen here for you to get a sense of where these people are all coming from. If you look at this map, hopefully, we got, yeah, we got it there. If you look at this map, you see Jerusalem on the very bottom center. See Jerusalem down there? All the places that are listed are places that we're talking about here in the book of Acts. People are coming from hundreds of miles, some even from over a thousand miles away, gathered in one place, and they are amazed that these simple Galileans are speaking their language. Now, what are the disciples saying? Were they preaching the gospel? Not yet. It says in verse 11 that we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So the tongues miracle wasn't the gospel itself. It's a prelude to the gospel. It's a sign that caught the attention of the people and authenticated and pointed the way to the gospel. It authenticated and confirmed the authority of the speakers. Now this is very consistent with what we see throughout the rest of the book of Acts and throughout, I think, the rest of the New Testament. The miracles of Jesus and the apostles authenticated their authority and confirmed their identity, and backed up the gospel when they preached it. Great example of this is, remember that story when Jesus heals the paralytic? Remember this story in, in the gospels? The guy's friends lower him down through the roof because they can't get to Jesus. And what does Jesus say to the paralytic at first? Do you remember? He says, man, your sins are forgiven. And all the religious leaders are all buzzed about that. They're all upset about that. I mean, who is this guy who thinks that he can forgive sins? Who is this guy? And Jesus says, I'll prove to you I've got the authority to forgive sins. And then he heals the man. The miracle authenticated the message. 
You see how that works? The miracle authenticated the message and the authority of the messenger. Now, it's the same thing with the apostles. We see in other texts of the New Testament, like Hebrews chapter 2, it says the gospel was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So notice how the signs and the wonders and the miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit bore witness to the gospel. They weren't the gospel. It wasn't enough just to heal some people and walk away, but they bore witness to, authenticated, confirmed, gave authority to that gospel. They didn't replace it. Uh, Paul says something very similar, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. On the day of Pentecost, the disciples, I guess they could have just stood up and they got everyone's attention and told them, guess what? The Messiah came, you killed him. Repent and believe. But what do they do instead? God empowers them with the spirit of God and instead they, they get up and first prove that we are indeed messengers from God. And they do this by miraculously speaking in the same language that these people were speaking in, even though they haven't learned it. They spoke of the wonders and the mighty works of God in the language of these Jewish pilgrims. And that miracle of speaking in tongues authenticated their authority to preach that gospel. It gets everyone's attention, tells them these are people we need to listen to. And what is the reaction of the people? It's a mixed reaction we're going to see. But the reaction of a crowd here shouldn't surprise us at all. If we know anything about the ministry of Jesus, we know even he got a mixed reaction at best when he preached the gospel. And if he got a mixed reaction, certainly the disciples will. And if they did, certainly we will too, right? Look at verses 12 and 13. You can see it. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. So everyone's all together. They're amazed and they're perplexed. They know that they have experienced something phenomenal, something that they cannot explain naturally. But like with most miraculous things, there are some who simply will not accept this is from God. They mock, they make fun, they slander. Here it says they accuse the uh, disciples of being drunk. And this is especially insulting because they don't just say drunk, they say they're filled with new wine. New wine is less alcoholic in content than old, more aged wine, at least in the Bible times. It meant it had longer to ferment, uh, old wine did. New wine had very little alcoholic content, though it still had some. So this insult works on a couple of different levels, doesn't it? Either they're saying to the disciples, you can't hold your wine. I mean, you're, you're drinking this weak wine and you can't hold it. Or they're looking at them and they're saying the disciples have such a drinking problem that at this time in the morning, they're already drunk on new wine. Now, either way you cut it, they're mocking this miracle, aren't they? It's not a miracle. It's a bunch of babbling drunks is what they're saying. Now, what's interesting to me is that even the miracle itself does not convince these people. A miracle of God doesn't convince them. Some people do not want to be convinced of the gospel. There is no guaranteed foolproof method of winning someone to Christ. Jesus has to do a work in their heart. You might hear people say sometimes, you know, if I, if I see God, if I see a miracle, I'll, I'll believe in him. That's not the case, is it? 
That's just simply not how it works. Even people that see miracles, they see God, they make excuses why they don't want to believe. Here's what that means. When you share Jesus with someone, don't be surprised if they don't accept the gospel. That does not mean that you did something wrong. If they reject the gospel, it doesn't necessarily mean that you did something wrong. Sometimes rejection actually means you're doing something right. Your success in sharing the gospel is not dependent on how many converts you make because you can't control that. Your success in sharing the gospel is whether or not you have shared the gospel faithfully, in love, truth and love. The results are not up to you. Some people mock Peter and the disciples. Some people are amazed. But either way, this miracle of tongues gives Peter an audience with those people. Now, we're almost out of time here. We're, we're going to save Peter's actual sermon for next week. It's an awesome sermon. We're going to do a sermon on a sermon. Doesn't that sound cool? But I don't want to shortchange it. I want to cram it into five minutes here. But I want us, before you go, before you pack up, before you're mentally gone, Let's think about it for a minute, what we saw here today. First of all, God is a God who not only keeps his promises, he exceeds our expectations of them. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit is coming. He says he's coming, and he delivered, didn't he? The disciples are all together in one place, in one accord, praying, waiting, expecting, and, and not only does he show up, but he exceeds those expectations and fulfills the hopes of the Jewish people from old. Second, God baptizes the believers with the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. And we've got to recognize that believers today, every one of you, if you are a Christian, you are also baptized by that same Holy Spirit into the same body that these disciples were. Now, some of you have been baptized physically in water. That's something that God commands us as well. It's an outward example of what God has already done inwardly. If you're a Christian, though, you have been baptized spiritually by the Holy Spirit. God desires for you to step out in faith, be baptized physically, symbolizing your union with Christ in the church. But by means of our spiritual baptism, we are part of something bigger than us, much bigger than us. We are part of the church. And as we're going to see in the book of Acts, unstoppable spirit, unstoppable church. Because of what God has done within us, through us, in us, we are part of a mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. The same Holy Spirit that was with the disciples is with us today too. Praise God. Now, third thing, we've got to remember, based on texts like this, that reactions to the gospel will vary. We should expect people will reject the gospel. But we should also expect that some people will accept the gospel. Our success in preaching the gospel is not dependent on how people react to it. Our success is dependent on how faithful we were to communicate that truth in love. Is it the true gospel? Jesus died, he was buried, he rose again. By believing in him, we have forgiveness of our sins and hope for eternal life. How will people react to that? Well, the reactions will be varied. Just like with the early church, just like with Christ. But the point is, we have the same Holy Spirit that they did, Just like with the early church, just like with Christ, we were baptized with the same baptism into the same body, which means, church, you are divinely equipped to accomplish the mission that God has for you. To advance the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. God has equipped you to do that. You are not alone in that mission. 
because you have that same Holy Spirit that was with them. The entire church is with you and the power of the Holy Spirit enabling you to accomplish God's mission. So church, let's go forth today expecting that God is gonna do something great within us and through us. And rest assured, God will not disappoint. He will exceed those expectations. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the spirit of God here, that we would go forward knowing what our mission is, equipped, empowered, and ready to share the gospel. Let us not lose heart when people reject it and mock and sneer at us, but Lord, let us rejoice when someone has come to you as their savior. May we make disciples who make disciples. Lord, may we have a clear understanding of our union with the church, of the way that the spirit of God has brought us together. And Father, I pray that through that power, great things will happen through Riverstone and the believers here. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. God bless.